We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. His men called him Old Slow Trot and Old Pap. His fellow Union generals, like William Tecumseh Sherman, said he was indeed slow, but as true as steel. His superior, Ulysses S. Grant, never got along with him, but later admitted his admiration for the man. His family would say nothing to him or about him after he stayed loyal to the United States in 1861 instead of following his native state of Virginia into rebellion. Historians today call him one of the best generals the war produced. He is the subject of a new biography, George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel, and we'll talk to the author, Brian Steele Wills, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University on a gray and cloudy, threatening-looking afternoon a Friday late in November 2012. But as always, speaking not for the university, just for myself and for Civil War Talk Radio, not for World Talk Radio. And my guest will do the same, not for his institution or his center or anyone else, just for himself. And for your benefit, for the listeners of Civil War Talk Radio, that's why we're here. It is a... uh, It's been a, a nice week, but it looks like it is going to rain the... Weather people are filled with prognostications of a giant storm in the week ahead. By the time you're listening to this, hopefully you'll be somewhere dry and warm. But if you're listening live, it could be time to get ready for things here on the East Coast as there's a hurricane coming from one direction, cold air from another. Then again, maybe it will all fizzle out. So we won't say any more about that until later, just as we won't say anything more about 
baseball after commenting on the upcoming World Series last week. My hometown team, the Detroit Tigers, lost the first two games. And again, by the time you listen to this, if you download it a week or two away, you'll know the outcome. So I'll say no more at this point. Uh, But I will say, coming up in the weeks ahead, we have more interesting guests lined up who will be talking with us about different aspects of the Civil War era. Brian Dirk from uh, Anderson University joins us next week to discuss uh, Abraham Lincoln and white America, uh, an angle that really has not been explored in the past. Then we've got Gail Stevens, who works uh, with the Monocacy uh, battlefield, but also has written a new biography of Lou Wallace, the uh, author of Ben-Hur and General at Shiloh. Bobby Horton, Civil War musician, should be joining us on November 16. Then we've got Thanksgiving. November 30th, we'll be doing a program on scrapbooks in the Civil War. A new volume has come out that looks at the medium of, of scrapbooking as a way of collecting and disseminating information in the 19th century, including the Civil War. So it's a new idea, and we'll take a look at that. Then on December 7th, John Jakes will talk about his Civil War fiction, and that'll get us up to the end of the fall semester here at East Carolina University, where we are constantly uh, teaching the youth of America, preparing them in in various ways, uh, ideally to uh, live the life of the mind, to live rich and full lives, but uh, sometimes one gets the impression that the goal of the state legislators is simply to train uh, obedient cogs for corporations to hire, um, but rather than, than sound all, all uh, uh, disillusioned with higher education, I will say things have been uh, on the upswing in some ways here. Last night, for example, I was able to attend an interesting event. We had the poet laureate of the United States on campus, and she was reading and talking and having dinner with some important people. I was not among them because I, I just don't know a whole lot about uh, uh, contemporary poetry and sort of got off the train with Wallace Stevens, probably, uh, as far as poetry goes. So I, I didn't go to that. I went to a different dinner at which we hosted uh, Dr. Harold Baumgarten. Uh, Hal Baumgarten is a uh, 90-plus-year-old veteran of the United States Army who went ashore at Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944. And I will admit, uh, since uh, having dinner with him and some others last night and then hearing him talk to students today, that I've, I've had to sort of force my head back into the 1860s because it was really an experience to spend time with someone who fought in one of the great battles of history and was wounded uh, five times in in two days, June 6th and 7th, uh, before being evacuated. Uh, He has written a book. uh, If if this were a broader show, I'd have to have him on the show and we'd we'd hear about his experiences. But you can learn about them from his book, which I think is called D-Day Survivor. I've ordered a copy using, I might add, the Civil War talk radio book fund which so many of you have generously contributed to over the year if you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org 
where Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date for listeners. You can donate to the show's uh, book collection fund through the PayPal button there. You don't need your own PayPal account. They will suck money out of your account in some fabulously uh, un- unwilling way. You don't. You just think about it, I believe, and, and money goes from you to me. But if you click on the button, uh, send $20 this way, I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862, uh, in which George Henry Thomas uh, was uh, was an officer, or uh, did Lincoln own slaves? Questions frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, and I will use the funds that you send to to get books, and sometimes I will use them for other things. Uh, for example, when I bought uh, this morning after hearing Dr. Baumgarten talk about uh, D Day. I went online and, and bought a copy of his book through Amazon, but I found I couldn't uh, use the, the PayPal fund to pay for it. So I, I would have used your donations to buy this history book, uh, but I couldn't. Amazon doesn't cooperate with, with eBay in that way, or else I couldn't figure it out, or, or PayPal, I should say, not eBay. The upshot is that once in a while I will spend money that really should have come out of the book fund out of somewhere else, and then I'll go back to the book fund and use that to buy, say, a a giant bag of Three Musketeers bars or something. Well, that's not really the case because you can't use PayPal at the grocery store either. But I'll buy something irrelevant to the show topic. And I just say that to you now because when I do become sufficiently famous that I am audited and harassed by the media... And people look at the book fund and say, "He, look, he's buying whiskey instead of books. Uh, it's because I spent an equivalent amount of money from other sources on those books. And thus it all balanced out in my head, if not on paper. So having cleared my conscience of this morning's book purchase, uh, we move on to talk about uh, uh, today's book, which is George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel. The author is Brian Steele Wills. Brian, are you there? I've been listening to your uh, renditions about uh, about uh, baseball and the weather and, and purchasing. And, uh, and uh, of course, I commiserate with all those things because I'm a Cardinal fan, and, and the Cardinals uh, just decided just to just quit. I mean, they were doing so well, and then they said, well, we don't really care, and, and closed down and uh, shut down, and so uh, they are not going to be in the uh, World Series, and then the uh, weather here is nice, but it's supposed to kind of turn, but I, I'm actually going to be back in Virginia so that I can try to get the brunt of it. So whatever you don't get at East Carolina, I'm sure I'll get there. But uh, uh, otherwise, Kennesaw State University is doing very well and uh, busy right in the middle of a semester, as you are, and uh, and uh, we're going right along. We didn't have the Poet Laureate, and when I hear you talk about poets, I think it, given the nature of what you've been saying, I think you need to read El- Edward, Edward Arlington Robinson is what you probably need to read. So. I, I'm a, a huge <laughs> fan of, of, of E.A. Robinson, uh, Mr. Flood's Party, yeah. uh, He's pretty old, old Evan Flood, uh, <laughs> seeing uh, two moons as he dances along home. At night. Uh, there was actually, when I went to... Uh, uh, undergraduate uh, school at Ann Arbor, there was a bar called Mr. Flood's Party. Oh, and, okay. Uh, I, it was from that that I, I looked it up and learned uh, that it was a, a poem, and, and uh, I've been a Robinson fan ever since. Yeah, he's, he's um, a good one. Now, uh, 
Well, so many things there. Uh, I, I appreciate, first of all, that you were able to to stay awake and focused through my extended monologue. <laughs> so, thank you for that. Uh, and I do feel sorry about the Cardinals because yeah. the the Tigers and Cardinals have played uh, a number of series over the years. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that would have been fun. But d- tell us about your day job at uh, Kennesaw State. You're the director for the uh, Center for the Study of the Civil War Era. There, what does that do? That is correct. It's a it's a uh, center not unlike the center that uh, the James I. Bud Robertson and uh, Jack Davis had in at VPI in Virginia Tech. Uh, in that, it's largely uh, programmatic as opposed to uh, archival or or museum oriented. It's it's really aimed at trying to bring speakers and trying to uh, to do programming and do tours and all kinds of things. We just had a very successful trip to Shiloh with the group and. And uh, we'll be going to uh, Vicksburg uh, in the spring of next year. We're going to try to be there before the summer uh, uh, craziness sets in. But we're going to try to get in and uh, see Vicksburg. And uh, we've had some other uh, some other uh, programs planned. So it's very heavily oriented that way and open to students, of course, but open to community members. We're a partner of a brand new Cobb County Civil War Roundtable that now is already almost 150 or so members and it just is a, is a year old so it's done remarkably well and uh so we're you know we're moving right along and excited about uh, what's happening at Kennesaw and what's happening in Georgia in anticipation of course of the sesquicentennial uh, of the Atlanta campaign uh, in a couple of years well speaking of things happening in Georgia uh listeners who've been interested in this sort of thing will we'll note a few, I guess a month ago, a few weeks ago, the uh, the horrifying news that the state of Georgia was about to close its state archive uh, to to researchers. Did did that actually come to pass? Well, the, uh, the story is uh, very complex, as you can always imagine, and quite political, so I will nutshell it for you. And the, the simple fact is is that um, the state of Georgia moved into uh, identifications for individuals obtaining licenses of all kinds and found that if you're going to do that, you need a lot more personnel and a lot more money put into that type of activity. And so I think uh, as a way of uh, trying to uh, find ways of shifting money over, the the uh, powers that be looked at the archives as one place that they could save some money. And, of course, there was a hue and cry, and not only in Georgia but outside of Georgia. And uh, mm-hmm. so it is open but very, very limited by appointment. And, uh, and I hope that, of course, as things improve that that will change. But... Uh, uh, but for now, the archives is open. It's just simply uh, it's it's not uh, is on the basis it had been, and and I'm not sure when that'll turn around. But uh, it was quite an exciting development here because, of course, you know historians uh, like to have uh, opportunity to get at their at records. But then so do genealogists and other people that are interested in local and state history. So uh, so uh, I can guarantee you it was quite the. Uh, it was quite the brouhaha there for a little while. It, it's funny sometimes how, how state legislators act, and they will stir up a hornet's nest that they they don't expect. When uh, uh, I, it, last year, I guess two years ago now, when North Carolina legislators, or actually the school state school board, tried to uh, change the American history curriculum for uh, high school students, so it would start in 1877 because 
you know, who needs to know about that that late unpleasantness? <laughs> the the uproar from the progressive lefty history professors and the uh, conservative right wing patriotic groups uh, joined arm in arm was deafening. And uh, the, the the legislators got it from both sides. How dare you not teach the Civil War? And instead of uh, cutting the curriculum, they actually ended, ended up adding a second year of American history to the high school curriculum. So we ended up winning that battle, but it's just one battle in a long war. Well, I think this was just one of those unintended consequences that hadn't been completely thought out in terms of what might be a ramification of a policy that looks good and sounds good if you're uh inclined in that direction and um and I think it might have been a state decision not as much as it was a um a legislative decision and mm-hmm. and just trying to uh maybe draw even draw attention to this I don't know I mean I'm not certainly privy to any uh, any decision makers and what they say and why they say it it's just what kind of what you read in the newspapers but one of the things that uh was there was a uh, suggestion that um uh, that uh, kind of in the middle of the second column on a, on a la- on the last part of the page of paper that uh, you know the archives is really kind of caught in a vice uh, because mm-hmm. of the circumstances. So and not because they're trying to shut it down, not because they don't want an archives, but it just got caught in that in that uh, situation. So I'm hoping all that'll change, and and uh, and I think it already has been at least been uh, you know at least been brought to the public mind and that's as you say with the civil war curriculum that's not a bad thing I mean, no. it causes people to to think about whether that's important to them and you know why and i mean we we're in an institution like every other institution ours is actually growing and and doing pretty well but i mean everybody's always interested even the academic circles are interested in you know paying their bills and meeting the oh, bottom yeah. line and so the focus sometimes seems to be less on on the things you want it to be in an academic setting and maybe more on those practical things. But maybe a balance is, is just part of the, the ongoing effort and ongoing struggle. Well, hope, hopefully we will get there. I, I think that's <laughs> good analysis. Speaking of archival sources, let's talk about George Henry Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas has not been the subject of a biography. Was, was Cleves the last... No, actually, there were there were a couple that came out kind of back to back right before mine did. So it's actually uh, kind of a little mini wave, if you will, of Thomas books, um, uh, Christopher Einhoff and uh, Benson Bobrick, and there was another uh, book that came out as well. And those were, uh, you know, one one was sort of putting him in the modern pool of being sort of a champion of modern civil rights type thinking and. The other was sort of, uh, again, sort of holding Grant responsible for his treatment of Thomas. And and uh, and so you kind of have, you know, the sort of uh, some of the more modern thinking in, in one of the biographies and, and some of a, maybe a throwback to some of the old arguments in the other. And, and I was in the middle of my biography, and if I had had perfect opportunity, I would have uh, tried to get it out first. But it was one of those things where it was... Uh, uh, because I had a change in, in positions and, and, and some of the uh, responsibilities I have here, it just I didn't get to write as fast and didn't finish as fast as I wanted to. But I think I got Thomas, and I tried to put him more in the context of his times, do less of bashing 
um, you know, Grant and trying to elevate Thomas at, at, the, uh, at the expense of Grant and less of trying to put him, frankly, into a modern context that he doesn't fit. Thomas was a man of his times. And part of the problem, as you've already alluded to, is that you don't have a lot of papers. His wife will um, decide that her, his private papers should not be gawked at and will act accordingly. And so uh, you have to kind of piece together uh, the archival materials. But there are, for instance, at the Filson and, and at the Virginia State Library, at the various other places, Virginia Historical Society is probably is another primary place, there are letters. Uh, there were letters at West Point, and there's some letters in, in uh in Boulder, Colorado, that were uh, written to a uh, staff officer. So uh, there's actually a lot more out there than you think, and uh, it gives you some insight into Thomas, and it also, I think, shows you that you wish you had those other letters because he seemed to have been far more open in his personal correspondence than he was in any kind of other activity. Publicly, he didn't do well uh, promoting himself or presenting himself uh, there's a famous line of him shaking like an aspen leaf as he's asked to address Congress after the war, and uh, at one point saying, uh, what does a man give a speech for in Kentucky when he's being called to give speeches at Camp Dick Robinson in Kentucky at the beginning of the war? Uh, he just isn't the type to promote himself that way, and he thought that his career and the men's achievements would speak for themselves, and, he, and I think he didn't mind having... Others, like uh, Chaplain Van Horn, write on his behalf and speak for him. Well, he'll get a chance to have you speak for him. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Thomas's career some more in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a short break. We're talking today with Brian Steele-Wills. He's the author of George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market everyone has a belief system that they stand by it's comfortable and safe if you believe that a hot stove will burn you you won't touch it sometimes beliefs like this are practical but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system. And by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambrechts, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today, Brian Steele Wills, is the author of George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel, a biography of one of the great generals of the Union during the Civil War. We talked in our first segment a little bit about the, uh, the sources, the difficulty of, of sourcing this book, and uh, how that perhaps has over the years limited the amount written about Thomas, though there have been several biographies. Brian, when you mentioned the the ones coming out just as you were publishing yours or getting yours ready, uh, the same thing happened with Sherman in, in the 90s that uh, I think Kennett and Marzalek and uh, uh, two or three others uh, just es- escaped me immediately, but, but a whole slew of biographies came out of Sherman. Uh, uh, Michael Fellman was one. Uh, all at the same time, and I can't remember whose introduction it was. Maybe you'll remember who, who said the the experience of watching these books come out while his was still in preparation was like having the contents of a six shooter emptied into his abdomen, one at one hmm. bullet at a time. Uh, I hope it wasn't that painful seeing the other Thomas books come out, uh, but I, I don't think there's much argument that yours is the most thorough, and uh, I certainly thought. Uh, uh, most most entertaining and, and uh, uh, readable one uh, of those that I've looked through. So uh, glad you you stayed with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let let me ask what brought you to the subject in the first place. Why uh, you you were on the show in 2006 when we talked about your your book about Nathan Bedford Forrest, yeah. and you you've really you, you go full circle in the Civil War world when you go from Forrest to Thomas. <laughs> How come? Well, it's interesting you say that. Let me say before I forget that there were three books that came out on Forrest about the time mine did one before <laughs> mine, one after mine. So I seem to be in the in the trinity when it comes to these things, and uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And no, it's not like being shot in the abdomen. I think you look at what other people are saying, and and uh, then you put it aside because the one thing I wasn't going to do was sit down and try to refute or answer whatever it is someone else said. But you look at what they've seen, you know, look at their notes, you look at all the things, you see if there's anything you haven't found or you didn't see, if there's a perspective you didn't have. Uh, so, you know, I think in that way, and there are a few ways that I try to deal with that in the in my book, but for the most part I just try to tell my understanding of what I think made George Thomas who he was. I am not, as I, my friend Ed Bars would say, able to tell you where the 5th Ohio stood for three seconds before it marched over here. That's never been my interest. I've been interested in personalities and in and in uh, understanding what uh, I think makes someone tick. And so, to me, Forrest was very compelling. Thomas was very compelling. Uh, I grew up on a farm in eastern Virginia, so um, uh, my father brought home a, a walking horse journal that had an article on on Forrest, and that's what got me interested in Forrest. And I lived one county over from George Thomas's. Uh, birthplace county, and that's what got me interested in Thomas. Uh, because I was so close, I, I wanted to know more about him. I wanted to understand why someone from the part of Virginia that I uh, was from uh, felt the way he did, uh, made the choices that he did, and uh, so I wanted to pursue that. And of course, like all things, uh, you, the more you learn, the more you uh, the more you come to appreciate the subject, and that sometimes can be good or bad if. If you have a bad subject, I suppose, the more you find the things you don't like. Uh, I've found more things I liked about Thomas. I thought Thomas was a compelling figure and an interesting person 
that deserved to have his story told as best someone could tell it and and uh and I obviously didn't think the other books had succeeded in doing that or I, w- I would have probably pulled the plug. I thought I still had things to say and things that would enhance or in some ways um you know even stand apart from what had been said before. Well, you touched on on one of the questions everybody looks at with Thomas, which is his he's born in Virginia in the southeastern part of the state and uh you note that it's the same place where Nat Turner's uh, rebellion took place. Indeed, as a, a child, he was uh, aware of that event. It, it, it touched on his, his family. What made him, in, in your judgment, decide to stay with the Union? Well, you know, the joke, of course, that one tells is that it's never just any one thing and that, the, that history complicates or makes complex what so many of us would prefer to be simple. I mean, so many of us would, would, the way we want to teach things, and Lincoln is the great emancipator, period, you know, so forth and so on. Well, in in Southampton County, Virginia, you know, George Thomas, to a lot of people, simply the traitor. And uh, you mentioned in your introduction about the family. His sisters didn't forgive him. Now, his brothers were not so bad. His brothers actually, uh, one of them actually said, I don't think that George had any other real choice. And part of that is because he had spent a lifetime in the service of the nation, uh, having sworn to the Constitution and, you know, attended West Point, so he felt his education uh, had been given to him through the, the auspices of, of the nation. And, and so I guess, you know, you can make the same argument about Robert E. Lee, why would he then pick the way he did? You know, they're just different people. But then one of the other things, of course, is Thomas married a woman from Troy, New York. And uh, they, she insisted that they never spoke or never talked about the subject, but that he always knew what his duty would be. And, of course, if one is married and one's wife insists that she knows how one should think, one probably has ways of understanding that, of coming to, to recognize that. Now, that does not mean he chose the Union for a peace and harmony at home. I think he was perfectly comfortable with the choice he made. Um, and, of course, there were the doubters, uh, Abraham Lincoln himself at one point saying, let the Virginian wait. Uh, you know, doubts about uh, whether Thomas could be counted on or not, and then, of course, questions about his style of warfare. And, uh, you know, we can talk about this later, but I don't think he and Grant, I don't think he actually hated Grant, and I don't even think Grant hated him. They just hmm. didn't mesh. They didn't mm-hmm. They didn't see warfare the same way. Thomas was, I'm going to prepare myself absolutely as best I can. I'm going to then wage the battle to win it. I want to win it decisively. I don't think Grant would have seen things any differently to that. But where they would have parted company was that Thomas would then say, having fought the battle, I'm going to replenish the supplies, replace the losses, get the Army ready for the next campaign. And Grant would prefer, of course, that you keep plugging on, you know, in any case. And and Sherman, bless his heart, if there's a person that's out there, uh, that's a good Southern saying, by the way, bless his heart, does not always mean a positive thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, but, uh, but uh, Sherman is, is claims to be his best friend, but almost everything is a dig or a, a, a slash or a cut. Uh, you talk about guns to the abdomen, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, Sherman who's got the pistol and is constantly squeezing the trigger. As you mentioned, when he says, and I got the title of the book from his quote, uh, he may be slow. Well, of course, there he is to bash, and, but he's as true as steel. 
so he's giving him a backhand with one uh, one way and a, and a compliment with the other, and that's kind of the Sherman Thomas relationship. It's very interesting and very complex. Well, well, that uh, many interesting angles there. The way uh, Thomas related to these other generals, to to Grant and to Sherman. Uh, you anticipated what I was thinking about uh, the idea that, that Thomas had no choice but to go with his country because that's the cliche one often hears about Lee. And as, as you point out, they made opposite choices, but they had different different views. The uh, the style of, of of fighting that Thomas used that, that makes people think of him as slow. Uh, if you if you look at at the start of his career in in the Civil War and this is a, a substantial book and in I will tell you our audience and you Brian as well with uh, truth in advertising being what it is I requested this book from our school library uh, a couple weeks ago I thought I could use Civil War book funds to buy this but they they promise that they have a new system at the library where if you request a book and they don't have it they'll get it not on loan but they'll just buy it for the library immediately and i tested them well <laughs> it worked sort of i got it yesterday morning hmm. and by that time i felt i couldn't if, if i'd ordered my own copy it'd be too late i am going to get my own copy now uh, after i return this one but i spent the last day or so when not listening to fascinating stories about d-day from our, our guest uh, sort of flipping through, and, and, and Thomas, of course, served in, in the part of the, the war that I'm most personally familiar with, uh, the Western uh, Front and the Army of the Ohio, Army of the Cumberland in particular. So I, I have not read it as closely as I wished I could have and as, as closely as I planned to. But I do want to ask, about, therefore, this is... This is what lawyers are trained never to do. Don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Uh, but I'm going to ask, uh, Battle of Logan's Crossroads mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Mill Springs, Springs uh -huh. is, to my mind, I mean, that is where, where Thomas first stands out as a military commander uh, at a time when uh, his superior uh, Buell and Halleck and, and the Western Theater can't seem to get anything going. Thomas takes a small force and wins a, a strategically really important victory in in southern Kentucky. And it, it, is this an example of what you talked about, where you prepare and prepare, but then when you attack, you 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 push forward with everything? Well, it's it's interesting you asked that question because because um, there's so many pieces to the story, and Mill Springs is one of the best examples of it. Thomas spends a lot of his time uh, recruiting men and getting them ready in Kentucky. The person he took over from was a man that you'll note, uh, maybe your audience may not know as much about, fascinating character in his own right, William Bull Nelson, Navy fellow, uh, curse you out six times in the same sentence, a sea salt if there ever was one, and later on shot by a man named Jefferson Davis, but not president of the Confederate States, <laughs> a Union general. But but the point I'm making about it is that Nelson rubbed everybody in Kentucky the wrong way. Well, you've got Lincoln and everyone else understanding that you can't, you've got to take this 
this war a step at a time. And the one thing you've got to do is be very careful with the border states and very careful with Kentucky. And the famous quote that, I, you know, I must have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. And, and if I don't have Kentucky, it's the same as to lose the whole game. And the famous um, the idea that somehow or another once Kentucky's neutrality has been violated by the Bishop Polk and Gideon Pillow and the, on the uh, Mississippi River side of things, Grant immediately moves in and, and other Union forces move in. But what happens is the, when you win that first big battle in January 1862 and you defeat and, in a sense, crush an army, but you miss a great opportunity to sort of finish things off in a headline-grabbing way, and then someone else does grab the headlines, you pay a price. And I'll just say it very quickly because I know you've got plenty of things you want to talk about. But uh, in January 1862, uh, Thomas defeats Felix Zollicoffer's force. Uh, he defeats it decisively. Uh, Zollicoffer is killed. Uh, one of the things that the Confederates had done was cross the Cumberland River in the area of uh, Logan's Crossroads and, and Mill Springs and a little area of Nancy. It's got several titles. But the place was called Beach Grove, and they had built a, uh, earthworks that were formidable. Well, the battle took place miles away from that location, and once the Confederates were defeated, they retreated to that point and then had a, a rallying point. And whether you're Nathan Bedford Forrest or George Henry Thomas, you understood that a rallying opponent or an opponent that could catch its breath was as dangerous as an opponent that you had, hadn't yet broken. In fact, maybe because you are also spread out, because you've also taken losses because of your own condition, a rallied opponent might actually be more dangerous. So, uh, so Thomas's approach to that was as he got within a short distance of of uh, Beach Grove, he began to set up for what he hoped the next day would be a fait accompli. If I can put my forces in a position, bring up some artillery down the line, and eventually put everything in, in place, then the next morning I can convince any commander in his right mind that he's in an, un, in an untenable situation and talk him into surrender. Well, if you get the entire Confederate command to surrender, unconditional surrender goes to Thomas, not to someone else. But instead, through the night, the small steamer, Noble Ellis, ferries the Confederates across the river, and while the army disintegrates, they escape. And the next day, Speed Fry, a fellow who had an interesting connection to the Zollicoffer uh, death, uh, the death of Felix Zollicoffer, uh, Speed Fry from Lexington, Kentucky, comes up to Thomas, and he says, you know, why didn't you finish them off last night? And Thomas doesn't use all of the many excuses he could have used. He says, hang it, Fry, I never once thought of it. What he was busy thinking of was how to finish off the opponent, and everything would be done the next day, and the next day there was no opponent to finish off. Now, fast forward in February, and at Fort Donaldson, you've got Ulysses Grant, U.S. Grant, unconditional surrender Grant, who can get all the headlines, and even though I would argue, and it sounds like you agree, that Thomas's role of smashing a part of the Western theater line of the Confederate defenses is, is, is very important and very significant, gets lost then in the Fort Donaldson shuffle, in the Fort Donaldson headlines. That's a, 
excellent point. It does. It causes uh, people to forget by by winning at Mill Springs that unhinges the the Cumberland River as as a Confederate defense line. They can't use it anymore, and now uh, the next stop back is Nashville, and from there, then when Fort Donelson falls, uh, there goes Nashville too. So they're they're both critical. But that's interesting that that if 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 uh, uh, Pillow and, and Floyd at, at Fort Donelson had the, a steamer available to evacuate, they would have done. Uh, well, they personally did the same thing. If they could have gotten their well, army, well, you know, out. Floyd did signal. A, he got a uh, the Mississippians, I guess, that he brought in and replaced them with his Virginians. He then floated out to safety. Yeah, but uh, but of course, you know, the Confederates at Donelson do uh, open up some lanes of escape, and if they had listened, and if they yeah. listened to Forrest. They could have probably worked their way out, and it would not have been easy. It would not have been pretty. Uh, they, you know, again, the story, you never know how things would turn out. It might have been just as disastrous, but the way it happened, uh, the, Thomas did not get that sort of nice bow on a victory that then could give him a big name that, that Grant did. And, of course, you know, Grant didn't win at Henry, and he gets credit for Henry, even though the Navy did Henry uh, before mm-hmm. Donaldson. And then, of course, Grant sacrifices a lot of his reputation by what happens at Shiloh. And, of course, Thomas can't benefit from that because he is at the rear of Buell's men coming in, and that same William Bull Nelson's the one who actually gets in on the fighting the, the second day at Shiloh, and Thomas comes in at, uh, at the end of the line uh, not really contributing at all. So, you know, the timing does not help uh, George Henry Thomas a whole lot. It doesn't quite there. Timing tells us it's time to take another short break right now, so we're going to do that. I'm talking today with Brian Steele Wills about George Henry Thomas, subject of uh, Professor Wills' new biography. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. Listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Brian Steele Wills. He's the author of George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel, a biography of the Union General. We've been talking about Thomas's career early in the Civil War and his success at Mill Springs or Logan's Crossroads, which uh, boosts him in the estimation of some, but not nearly as much as Grant gets boosted for Fort Donelson. Thomas is one step behind. The timing isn't quite right. Uh, Thomas doesn't capture Crittenden's army the way uh, Grant captures a whole army. The timing for uh, for Thomas, uh, Brian, it seems to me, is always a little off. He gets his opportunity later in the year, in 1862, when, when Bragg invades Kentucky and uh, Thomas and the rest of the Army of the Ohio go racing back toward Louisville to, to head off Bragg. And in September 1862, the administration has had enough of Don Carlos Buell, and they appoint Thomas to replace him, take over the Army of the Ohio, and now he can win the great victory that will free Kentucky and uh, end the invasion uh, in the, the West. But he doesn't do it. He he turns down the promotion. He turns down the, the appointment to command the army. What What is he thinking? Well, the best that I understand of it is that he looked at that as a campaign already in motion, and his feeling was that it was neither just to General Buell or just to himself and he actually makes that argument, and the first injustice he felt would be to try to replace a commander in at the eve of battle, as he puts it, or in the an active campaign that he has planned for that he's trying to carry out. And the other injustice is that, that he then feels like he has to pick up in a situation that he is not fully prepared himself for or prepared his army for. And again, I think that sense that uh, I want to be in a position where my hands aren't tied, where, uh, you know, I have uh, the untrammeled uh, opportunity to do the things that I need to do and want to do. Uh, He will later on criticize uh, Rosecrans, as he puts it, for uh, being pushed uh, because he says you should never, he said, if I had to say one thing, and he's not really negative about uh, about uh, his fellow generals, but he says, you know, is don't go until you have until you have a good ready, until you're good and ready to do that. And and I think that's just his mantra all the way through his life. It almost, of course, costs him his command at Nashville, where he's mm-hmm. uh, almost replaced, uh, and of course, ultimately comes out. But Thomas is not, you know, he does not have uh, success across the board. At Perryville is is a uh, a uh, very lackluster record for him. Uh, Stones River, on the other hand, uh, two great uh, lines uh, that, again, there's a lot of question of did he really say this or not, but uh, it fits his character. There's no better place to die than here, and this army does not retreat. Uh, those are the things that fit his personality. The Rock of Chickamauga, the man who, of course, whose army uh, beats Bragg's army at Chattanooga. So you go down the list of things. Even in the Atlanta campaign, where he's under, uh, where he's under Sherman, Sherman says he is my off-wheel horse. Well, a wheel horse, the wheel pair, the most important pair on an artillery team, and as an artillerist, uh, Thomas certainly would have uh, appreciated that. Uh, but he says he doesn't always pull the same way that I do. He doesn't always pull the way I want him to pull, in essence. And I think that was the clash, again, with Sherman, who, by the way, was always saying things to, t- to Grant, I think stirring up things with Grant. So, you know, I don't always hold Grant as responsible as I do Sherman. 
and yet I don't hold, I mean, I don't think Sherman, Grant, or, and Thomas had big problems. The person that I come out of this book feeling the most negative toward is yeah. uh, Union General Schofield. That's the guy that Why was, is, he's under, he undermines that? Thomas. He's constantly uh, berating him and belittling him, especially late in the war. He, of course, wants to be transferred to Sherman when Sherman's going uh, towards Savannah and the sea. Uh, and Schofield is probably is responsible for Thomas's end. Uh, he is, uh, had, had moved to uh, the Pacific uh, in 18, at the end of 18, uh, six, the 1860s. It's actually there in 1870 when he dies. And um, he's writing a response to uh, basically a ghosted uh, description of the Nashville campaign that gives all the credit to Schofield and says that Thomas deserves none and is, is uh, even worse than that. And the pen is uh, sliding off the paper as he suffers basically a stroke uh, trying to respond to that. So in some ways, you know, when you think about who was probably the hardest on George Thomas in terms of the effect they had, it, it wasn't Grant, it wasn't Sherman, it was Schofield. Hmm. This just based on, on Schofield's personality. Did he have any reason to to dislike Thomas? Uh, you know, I think jealousy? that was the biggest thing is that he he they, he just he didn't well first of all he didn't think Thomas was very smart. He was constantly belittling his intelligence. And if you study Thomas, I think one you one of the things you come across, he's not Albert Einstein. I mean he's not trying to he never presents himself that way. But he's a studied, intelligent, capable person. He loves science. He loves literature. Everywhere he goes in the pre-war period, he sends back specimens, or he takes notes, or he writes out uh, things for future reference. Uh, he has a scientist uh, curiosity. He has an intellectual capacity. And uh, he actually sends specimens to the Smithsonian. He will even identify a species of bat that they didn't know existed. And so, um, you know, he's not an intellectual lightweight. He reads. He's a he's a literate person. He's not especially religious. Uh, he he does look at religion as sort of a basic that he thinks that that if you're a religious person, that makes you a more likely to be a better person. But beyond that, he doesn't you know really say a lot, and he sort of says, "I'll take my chances." So uh, he's he's certainly not uh, you know prone that way. But, uh, but, you know, Schofield, I think, was just conniving. Uh, and there were, I mean, there's generals on both sides that are quite clear of that. But with Buell, with Rosecrans, uh, especially with Rosecrans, Thomas wanted to make it clear that he had never done anything to undermine or undercut those generals, that in no way was he trying to promote himself. And if anything, he went to the opposite extreme of of not doing some things that he probably should have, perhaps again also what you were saying, maybe he should have taken Buell's place and taken his chance and see what he could accomplish. But, you know, he didn't want it to look as if he had done any kind of conniving or any kind of manipulation uh, of a uh, superior officer to get a promotion, to get a position. And he tended to hold uh, slights very uh, internally. Uh, he tended to uh, hold disappointments uh, suppressed them. And I think that also, I'm sure, had some effect on his health down the line. If you hold all that stuff in, it's, it's going to manifest itself some way. Yeah, with, uh, with Buell, as you point out, he was, he was loyal. He didn't want to replace Buell before Perryville when he didn't think it was fair. But 
after that campaign, there was that, that very curious military commission that investigated uh, Buell that also provides us with great source material when, when right. all those generals get interviewed. And Thomas is interviewed, and there, the, it's quite a technical point. They're arguing where the Army should have gone in August right. 1862. Should they have concentrated in McMinnville or Altamont or uh, Detchard, or where, where should the Army be? That's right. And T- Buell believed that Thomas agreed with him at the time, but Thomas testifies that he thought the Army should have done something different from, from what Buell had to do. The impression I have reading that source material is that Thomas is, is being very forthright and honest and, and, and is not going to, to lie to benefit himself or Buell, but I also get the feeling Buell is a little surprised. Well, by, I, think you've, uh, I think you've nailed it, because I think what you've done is you've, uh, you've seen that there's not a subterfuge on the part of Thomas. He's not going to say something that benefits him or, or knocks an, uh, uh, anyone else down to, for, his own, for his own aggrandizement. But at the same time, I do think that, uh, that he thought that, and I think that's another reason he said, I don't think it's fair for me to take his place now in the middle of an active campaign, because I think in part he was saying he hasn't conducted it the way I would have conducted it mm-hmm. heretofore. So I think that's part of what, what's going on underneath all of that. Um, you know, did Thomas have an in, a latent insecurity? Uh, the last thing I want to do is get into psycho history, but, you know, he may very well. He was a middle child. He was a sort of a mediator-type person, um, and uh, he was a person who was sort of always trying to establish himself in ground that was a lot easier for other people. Uh, uh, so, you know, he wasn't the uh, firstborn who had everything handed to him. He wasn't the lastborn who was spoiled rotten. He was in the middle, and uh, and so he had to fight his own way. And I think that was part of his personality. But he also thought the things he did and the things he accomplished, after all, he is the rock of Chickamauga. He is the sledge of Nashville, that these things will speak for themselves and will establish all the reputation, all of the justification for promotion he needs. I, I jokingly say that he's probably the most nicknamed general in the Civil War <laughs> because he has a lot of them. You alluded to some in your opening. Well, l- let me, since we're almost out of time, we cannot leave Thomas without talking about Chickamauga, which really is the centerpiece of his, his reputation, uh-huh. uh, even more than Nashville, which, which one has to know a little more about the war to get that far, but... At Chickam- the Rock of Chickamauga, the whole Union Army leaves the field except Thomas and his men. Uh, what, what was the secret there? Well, I think in large measure, um, Thomas just put himself in a, in, a, in a good defensive position. The uh, Confederate attack was fortuitous, if you know about Chickamauga and you know the miscommunications and, and, and uh, so forth that occurred that gave James Longstreet, who had come over from Lee's Army in the east, and uh, reinforced uh, Bragg's army at Chickamauga. He makes an attack that shatters the center and the Union right. And and in some ways, because Thomas had constantly been calling for reinforcements, had been getting reinforcements, and got himself on Snodgrass Hill and and, uh, Horseshoe Ridge in a fairly good defensive position. And, of course, you can always... The, uh, to borrow a phrase from George Pickett, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. In this <laughs> right. case, I think the Confederates had something to do with it because they attacked, you know, in piecemeal. They attacked in ways that you could you could fend the attacks off a little easier than if they had been launched in another way. But it was a um, 
close thing, and, and Thomas uh, shows that, and see, and you see that. He's very stoic, and most people see that on the battlefield, but he's also nervous and fidgety in a way that's, that's um, you know, indicative of Thomas in those circumstances, too. They said when he got really ruffled, he'd swirl, he'd move his whiskers up, and then when he calmed down, he'd smooth them back down, and so he he's not demonstrative, but uh, he is very uh, pleased when Steedman, James Steedman, shows up with reinforcements. But again, typical Thomas, the first thing after he says is, thank God you're here, you basically saved us, is, well, how many muskets have you got? And so he's always practical. And, and I think that's the other thing. He's pragmatic, practical, methodical, solid, all of those things, which uh, uh, certainly in defense are, are outstanding, but I would argue that he also had proven himself uh, on the offense as well. Well, not only at Nashville, but of course at, at Missionary Ridge, which is not really Thomas's tactical uh, acumen that makes that work. Just right. to, his men just go forward and they don't stop. That's right. Uh, but but they they certainly cover themselves with glory there too. Well, I'm sorry to say that we are at the end of our hour. Uh, always too fast, but I, I hope this conversation will prompt our listeners to get a copy of George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel. I'm going to uh, go online and spend some of their hard-earned cash that they've donated <laughs> here and get my own copy uh, because I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm, I have in the back of my mind a book about the Buell Commission someday. Oh, okay, um, okay. Well, I do address that, and and uh, and if you're like all the rest of us historians, you'll note that your book is in the is in the uh, notes and in the uh, bibliography. And uh, everybody always thinks historians pat each other on the back, but you know, work of other people informs the work we do. And I think that is an important lesson for students to understand and for people to realize that no historian does all of this by themselves. Well, that's absolutely true. It, it's I joke about how we open our a new book and look in the back to check the the uh, bibliography did he read my book uh but but in fact we we couldn't get along without uh, building on each other's work that's absolutely the case and and uh you you've added another uh, major brick in the wall of civil war scholarship with this one uh which the listeners will want to get so Brian thanks so much uh, for this book and for for joining us on the show today well thank you very much i've enjoyed it And listeners, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management